Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. And I'm so excited tonight because we are going to continue talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and that is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so we've gone through chapter 5, but um, I wanted to just kind of give you a, a feel for this book, what's going on, and kind of what we have talked about so far. Are you ready? Okay, great. So the book of Matthew is written um, to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is sent from God. He is the one to show that he is the only one. And so he does this in a few different ways because he is proving it primarily to Jewish people. And so he shows Jesus as the son of David. That's very important. And then he shows Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. But he also makes a point to show that Jesus is the Moses, of the new Moses. Because Moses in Jewish culture was incredibly important. Because he's the one who went up on the mountain, right, and got the Ten Commandments. He didn't just get the Ten Commandments. He got a whole lot more than that. He got a lot of law from God. And when he went up on the mountain, God would only talk to Moses. In fact, no one else was allowed to even touch the mountain, including even livestock, on pain of death. I've heard preachers say things like, well, the only reason that Moses was the one God talked to is because nobody else would draw near. That's not the way it worked. See, God chose Moses, okay? God chose Moses and said, you're going to be the one I talk to. And he said, make sure you tell everybody else, I'm not talking to them. (laughs) I am talking to you. And I'm going to give you the law. And then you're going to turn around and you're going to give it to the other people. And so what we see at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is very symbolic and very important. Because remember that the stories about Jesus are so many, according to the Apostle John, that they can't all be recorded. In other words, what he's saying is it's too many for one book. So the writers of the Gospels are having, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to choose what they're sharing from us. And they do it in a strategic fashion, right? They do it according to literary tradition. And so where Jesus is when he's giving this sermon and what he's saying is really, really important on three or four or five different levels. He's on a mountainside. Sound familiar? But what's he doing? He's not standing there waiting for God to give him the law. He is God, and he's speaking the truth. Not only that, he's not yelling from the top of the mountain. He's not going up to pray and then coming down. He is inviting the people to join him on the mountainside. Do you see how different this is? How much of a foreshadowing it is of what he's going to do on the cross, where he's going to rip the veil and invite people 
into the very presence of God. No longer will it be God just speaking to one person, but God will be available to speak to each and every one of us. Isn't that amazing? So that's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus is now being Moses. And so he gives us these blesseds. We hear them um, beatitudes, right? We, you probably have heard that before. Um, the blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And there's this whole list. And we went through them all. And what it basically comes down to is Jesus is saying, happiness comes from a different way of life than you would have imagined. The things that you thought probably weren't the way to happiness, actually they are the way to happiness, to true fulfillment. But then he gives this kind of caveat and he says, hey, but if you really live like this, if you really live with full integrity, if you really live as a peacemaker in a world where everybody wants you to choose a side, if you really live truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness all the time, if you really live with true humility, you're probably going to be persecuted for it because it's going to be very countercultural. It's going to be offensive. It's going to be annoying. <laughs> and when that happens, don't be upset about it understand that I have overcome the world. And he goes through all of these different things. He explains who we're supposed to be, that we are light and we are salt. And then he says, you know, and not only that, are you light and you're salt, but you are called to a different level of righteousness than you have ever seen before. A, a level that's not about just the, the very letter of the law, but a level that is about your spirit being right, that's about your motives being right, that's about your heart being right, a people-centric way of life because people are what God cares about the most. And so we go through all of that, and we get to chapter 6, and I'm so excited. But we have to remember the context because we are still in the portion where he is explaining to us that unless our righteousness is more than the greatest religious leaders of the times, we read scribes and Pharisees and we're like, oh, those guys? That is not how it sounded then. It would have been like, unless your righteousness is better than whatever preacher, whatever teacher, whatever, whatever person in your life, maybe it's your grandma who's like, oh my gosh, she's the pinnacle of godliness in my mind. Whoever that person is, he's saying, hey, if your level of righteousness doesn't surpass, that's the level of person he was picking out. Does that make sense? He's saying if it doesn't surpass that, you're not going to participate in the kingdom of heaven, which was a really big deal. Because, guys, he's talking to Jews, right, in Judea who are under the oppression of the Romans. So they had lost their earthly kingdom. So what was left? The kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, but the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, hey, 
if you're righteous, do you hear, do you kind of feel the tension? Anybody feel the tension? Like, can you imagine, like, sitting in the audience and you're like, wait, what? What? What are, what are you saying to me? And so that's where we get into chapter 6. And let's just read it together. We're going to go verse by verse. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I can't wait till, I can't wait to hear what God speaks to you as I speak. Because this is what's so neat, is that you're going to hear things as we read these scriptures. And you're going you're gonna to have insights, Right? that you're not even going to hear me say, because that's what the word of God does. The Bible says that the word of God is a living, it's living and it's sharper than a two-headed edged sword. That means it just cuts to the point. And there's so many times when I'm hearing a sermon and they just read the, the scripture and God convicts me on a point. So isn't that exciting? I love that. I love knowing that it never returns void. Okay, verse one, be very careful not to do your good deeds publicly to be seen by men. Otherwise, you will have no reward prepared and awaiting you with your Father who's in heaven. Can I get a tissue? Is there one back there? Would you find me one, Austin? I've got allergies. Anybody got allergies? Like, are we kidding me? Like, this is the time of year where I go, really? Really, Louisiana? Thank you, Spirit. All right, so be very careful not to do your good deeds publicly to be seen by men. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now listen, if you've been following along in in chapter 5, which is right before here, and and there weren't chapters and verses in the original um, book, all right? Those are just for our reference so that we can easily say, oh, you're looking at this, I'm looking at that. You know, that's the reason that those were there. Those were put in much, much later. They are not part of the inspiration portion of the book um, according to our beliefs. So so, uh, in this same area, Area, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, same speech. It really seems to contradict because what it says is it says, let your light shine before men so that what? They will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And like a couple minutes later in the speech, he says, don't do your good deeds publicly to be seen by men. Otherwise, you're not going to have any reward. But it's not contradictory. Instead, it's about motive. Because in the earlier verses, it says that they will see and what? Will they give you glory? No. They'll give glory to your Father is in heaven. In fact, according to the verses, you on the other hand are likely to receive persecution for sticking to his way of things. But by doing good works, they're going to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as we read this, understand that it's not just about being like super secretive and not letting anybody know anything that you're doing, but it is about a mentality and a motive, right? So are we doing them publicly to be seen doing good works? In this time, you you had a choice of when you would do certain almsgiving, which was giving to the poor. And so see, you can kind of see the context. So whenever you give to the poor and do acts of kindness, do not blow a trumpet before you to advertise it as the hypocrites do like actors acting out a role in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored and recognized and praised by men I assure you and solemnly say to you, they already have their reward in full. 
But when you give to the poor and do acts of kindness, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is really interesting. I read a commentary today that said, your left and your right hand are very close together, right? Like, think about it. You know, I mean, your left, how can you not let, like, that? And what, what the commentary said is it said, don't take so much notice. Even you. Not just other people. But even you shouldn't take so much notice of the good that you do. Don't be so self-congratulatory right? Oh, it's good to celebrate. It's good to cheer. It's good to, but don't be, don't be so self-congratulatory. Don't make that the focus. Well, look at what I did. Even when you're congratulating yourself, be careful because we are all susceptible to the sin of pride. And the Bible says pride goes before a fall and I don't like to fall. So we want to be careful that even as we're striving to do good, that, that we don't let it become so much a part of our identity, right? That that's the thing that we're paying the most attention to. And he keeps going. It says, your charitable acts will be done in secret, and your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. I love this. He'll reward you as a father. Think about that for a second. Not as a master who just gives you what to do you and no more. That's the way an employer would repay you, right? You worked this amount, you did that, all right, you deserve this. But as a father, as a father, a father, you know, Carolina Lee, my, my oldest um, daughter, really likes to earn money. It's her favorite thing. She likes to earn money and save money. I don't know which one is her favorite. She loves it. It's, it. She's into finances. I bought her all these finances books for her birthday, and at first she was like, Mom, did you buy me homework for my birthday? And I was like, oh, babe, I totally did. I'm so sorry. She was like, yeah, so you're going to need to think about that? And I was like, yeah, you're right. I will have to think about that. And two days later, she'd read all of them. And she was like, Mom, do you know this about money? And I was like, yes. I'm sure I do. I had no clue what she was talking about. But she loves, she loves that. She, she loves, but, but sometimes she'll do stuff for me around the house, you know. And I, I love it. She'll be like, hey, mom, how much, how much, how much um, can I earn for organizing your closet? And I do a little, I just, I just am like, the Lord is good. I do one of those dances because I'm like, I am not that girl. I'm not the organizer. And she is, and she does a great job. And she's like, mom. I will organize your home closet. And I'm like, how much will you charge me for that? And she's like, it's going to be a lot. I'm like, what? $10. Glory be. But I don't pay her $10. I pay her $20. I'll tell you why I pay her $20. It's because I know that $20 is going in a bank account because she's saving for her first car. Okay? So I am paying me. A father invests in his children differently than a master does. So when you read this, he's saying, hey, do your work as unto me. Do you hear it? Don't do it as unto all those other people. You think they, you think they care about you the way I care about you? You think, you think, you think 
that they will reward you? You think their praise is going to stay? No, I'm your father, and I'm telling you, I see what is done in secret. You know, I, I saw this quote, and I love it. It is a terror to hypocrites and a comfort to sincere Christians that God truly sees in secret. I thought it was a great quote because if we're honest, hypocrisy is a sin that we constantly have to pull out of our garden. We garden a lot at the D's house right now. We call Phil Farmer Phil. Actually, all of my brothers call him Farmer Phil, and it's really funny in the family chat. I enjoy it. Um, in fact, we had a rabbit yesterday um, eating some of our food, you know, and uh, Farmer Phil got feisty. So that was fun. But the thing about farming, the thing about gardening is that it doesn't matter how good of a gardener you are, right? You're going to have what? Weeds. And sometimes what we can do is we can see weeds as commentary on, oh, we're just terrible people. We just live in a fallen world. And we are in a journey with Jesus. And instead of looking at the weed and just getting so upset about the weed, pull it out and keep moving. Hypocrisy is a weed that can eat at our lives. What does it look like to have hypocrisy? You, you can check a few different things. One, that you're living different than you teach, than you tell other people you're living. That's, that's one level. I would say that's probably the most dangerous level because you're adding lying, right? So you're telling your small group leader that you're reading all of the verses, right? But you ain't, all right? When I was a little girl, I thought I had read the whole Bible through because I had been in church so much. So when my small group leader would ask me if I had read it, I was like, yeah, she didn't ask if I read it this week, you know. Anyway, I just thought you'd want to know that about me. But anyway, I think that's one level of hypocrisy, right? Like we're telling people that we're living a certain way. We tell people that we did something at work and we didn't do it. We tell people that we're living at hoarding to integrity and we're not. We're telling people and we're being hypocrites. And you're like, well, Destiny, how do I ever move forward? We're just honest about our failures. You know, we just, we just come back and we say, hey, I know I said I read the verses, but what I meant was, at some point in my life, I probably did read Deuteronomy, but it was not last week. Right? We correct ourselves, we apologize, and we move forward. But, but there's other kinds of hypocrisy, too. We hold other people's to standards that we don't hold ourselves to. I think we're all, we are all guilty of that from time to time. And we just, we just have to... Does that mean that you don't hold your employees to a standard? No. Does that mean you don't hold your children to a standard? No. But at the same time, you have to be honest, right? And, and then I think there's internal hypocrisy, and it's, this is the most dangerous one to me, is when you start lying to yourself about yourself, right? You're telling yourself, well, I really have their best interests at heart, and you know that you just want to catch them so you can punish them. Hypocrisy is one of those, those weeds that we have to pull out. 
All right, let's keep going. Also, when you pray, so so notice what he's done. He's talked about almsgiving or doing good works or giving to the poor, which was one of, of the three kind of pillar things that you had to do at this time in order to be righteous, right? And so and then he starts talking about prayer. Also, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Once again, for they love to pray publicly standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets so that they can be seen by men. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, they already have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your most private room, close the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. I so encourage you, don't ever allow prayer to just be something that you do in church. Don't allow worship to be something that you just do in church. Don't allow reading the Bible to be something that only happens in church. And you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so incredibly convicted. Did you know like 70% of church-going Christians would say that those three things don't happen in their life? Don't, don't feel guilty. Oh, I should. No, you can. You can, right? So it's so important. It's, it's, it's not that we can never pray publicly because we see examples all through the book of Acts where they came together and prayed, right? But it, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about the motive of our heart because the Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance In other words, you can fake everybody else out, but God looks at our heart, and that's what he cares about. He cares about our heart, and just like Pastor Clarissa preached about so beautifully, and if you didn't get to hear it, you should go find it. We've got to shrink the lines between our inner life, our private life, and our public life. We've got to get those in alignment. So, All right, let's keep going. And then he jumps from the hypocrites. This is the first time we see us move to the Gentiles. This is what he says. When you pray, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Now, now, see, this is interesting. Do you notice that the hypocrites are praying to God so other people will see them? But he's saying the Gentiles are praying to God so that God will hear him, right? So they have the right motive, but they have the wrong method. And more importantly, they have the wrong attitude, the wrong posture towards God. That God's a God that requires you to say it over and over and over again in exactly the right pattern, in exactly the right cadence, in exactly the right way, with exactly the right sacrifice, right? That God is somehow like a a, a magic ball or a magic spell that has to be summoned in a certain way so that he will come and show up on our behalf. And he's saying, don't be like that either. Even if you have the right motive, don't think I'm like that. Because your father in heaven isn't like that. He is a real father. And he says, so don't be like them. For your father knows what you need 
before you ask him. My Julietta is my little prayer warrior. Um, she has been ever since she was very, very little, and she takes it very seriously. And she was talking to her dad about prayer the other day. She's eight, and she's the cutest thing. She's spicy, though. But um, she's the cutest thing. And she said, Dad, she said, sometimes when I pray, I wonder, should I tell God what happened? Because he already knows. He's like, huh, that's a good point. And she says, and should I tell God how I feel about what happened? Because he already knows. And should I tell God what I need help with? Because he already knows. And he said, baby, what do you think? And it was so sweet just to hear a little kid answer. And he says, she said, I think I need to tell him because I think I need to hear it. I think I need to tell him because I need, I need to hear it. And, he's, you know, he gave her some other thoughts after he stopped crying. But um, but it's true. We need to talk to God. We need to talk to God like a father who already knows. You, you, know, you know, like when you came home, and you, I don't, I don't know. I had a mom and a dad who sometimes knew. And I knew that they knew. And they knew not because they were there. They knew because told them something. And I was trying to figure out what exactly he told them. Maybe you didn't grow up that way, but maybe you had an experience, you know, with a parent who knew, you know. They knew what had happened. They'd already gotten the call from the teacher at school. They'd already got, and they said, tell me what happened. When you know that they know, there's no reason to fabricate. There's no reason to hold back. There's no reason to try to change the story so you sound a little bit better. You can just rip open your heart and pour it out to God because he already knows you're not going to shock him. This conversation's not going to catch him off guard. He's not going to be confused. Even if you use a little of the wrong words or you don't quite get it out right, he already knows. Isn't that just such so reassuring? And then he goes and he says probably one of the most famous prayers in the whole world. He says, pray then in this way, our Father who's in heaven, you can say it with me if you know it, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the power and glory forever. So this is the thing. Um, it, depending on what tradition you grew up in or didn't grow up in, right, you, you memorized like a different version of that. But the next part is just as important as what we just read. For if you forgive others their trespasses, if this is how the Amplified Version <laughs> defines that. Their reckless and willful sins... Y'all, when I read that, that kind of hit me a little bit. Because it's one thing for me to forgive you when it was an accident. Right? It's one thing for me to forgive you when you didn't know better. But when you did it on purpose, 
you were willful, you were reckless with my heart, right? That's something else, isn't it? And yet, it says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, and I love this part, the Amplified says it this way, nurturing your hurt and anger with the result that it interferes with your relationship with God. Ooh. I have a choice. I can either nurture my hate and anger towards others, or I can nurture my relationship with God, but I have to choose one or the other. Then your father will not forgive your trespasses. This is so strong. This is so strong. And I don't think that there is anything that is more key to Christianity than forgiveness. Our God, our king, the one that we serve, our sovereign, the one we bow our knee to, the one that we submit our life to, he does not suggest forgiveness. He demands it. He sets it as a condition for forgiveness. He says, you may not, I will offer it freely to you, but you may not hold on to grudges against other people. You may not. That is not the way that we do it in my kingdom. But God, what about? But God, what about? But God, what about? Forgiveness, this is the thing. There's all kinds of benefits to forgiveness. Every, you can read studies about it. You can look at all kinds of different things. You can see historical examples. You can read um, even the, the test case of Rwanda. You can go through all of these different things, and it will tell you that forgiveness is the only way back to being fully free from what has happened in your past. But that is not what this verse is about. This verse is about what the rest of the Sermon of the Mount is about. Will you submit to my way over your way? And I would even say this, if you're only forgiving because of the benefits, then you're missing the blessing of forgiving. Because the blessing of forgiving is going, God, you forgave me. And in return, I'm forgiving all these people. Do you see what I'm saying? It's so crucial. It's so important. So we can see from this passage that prayer requires some very important things. It requires true faith in God that he's hearing us. Otherwise, we're like the hypocrites. And we're just praying so somebody else will hear us. I have to check myself sometimes when I pray with my kids. Because anybody uh, prayer preach at their kids? If you've never done it, just let me tell you, it's real. God, I just pray that you would help our family, and I pray that you would help Carolina to just be a kinder sister to her other siblings, right? And it's not that that's a wrong thing to pray, but am I really praying praying here, right? Am I praying there? So important. So we have to pray and have faith in God that he's the one who's actively hearing us. That he really does hear us. And then prayer requires forgiveness. 
It requires forgiveness, which is an outworking of faith in God. I really encourage you, as you figure out your own prayer rhythm in your life, work forgiveness in there. Daily going, Lord, am I holding any grudges against anybody? Right? Father, will you just reveal that in my heart? I want to I forgive specifically. And maybe, maybe you go, oh, I don't feel anything. Okay, Lord, I just want to forgive generally too today. Lord, anybody who, you know, really ticked me off and I'm, I'm not thinking about it right now, I just release them from what they did and the way that they acted. When we create that rhythm of prayer in our life, it's so incredibly powerful because it is a recognition that God is holy and that more than anything else that we desire his will to be worked in the earth. That we're not just looking to get what we want from him, that he isn't just a genie in the sky, but he is our father and he is our king who we serve. And we really believe that he knows what's best, not just for us, but for all of humanity. And because of that, we want to align our desires with his desires. Our prayers should show us that we are truly dependent on God for all things. It should reflect our dependence on him for all things. Once again, back to those, those rhythms of prayer. What's your response? When somebody starts telling you, you know, something about their life, if they're open to you praying for them, all right, do you say, hey, can, can we pray right now about that before we leave? Okay, would you mind if I prayed right now? That's one of the most powerful concepts. My, my dad really hit this hard a few years ago. He's a pastor and, and um, he, he, in, in his church, and I think he came in and preached it here. And it, what his thing was, can I pray for you right now? Instead of just saying, oh, I'll keep you in my prayers, to start to activate faith and to say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And we found that it's pretty, eight out of ten people, right? If you're in the appropriate setting, we'll say yes. And by appropriate setting, I've, I've, I've prayed for all kinds of people. I've prayed for people by copiers. I don't know, something about a copy machine. But anyway, you know, they just have a moment, and they're like, man, I'm going through this thing with my mom. And it's like, oh, can I pray for you right now? And they're like, would you? My dad loves to say this, and he says, you know, my God is a healer, and I would love, just, I would love to just pray for what's going on in your life. And it's beautiful how people feel loved and cared for, but that's something that we can offer to others. But it's a response. You know, even not going into other people, is it a response in our own life, right? When we're starting to feel the anxiety in a moment, do we stop and do we pray? When, when our child skins their knee, do we teach them that the first person we talk to about this is God? Like, when, do you see what I'm saying? Because we really believe that he is God, right? And if we believe he's God and he's interested in our lives, so we're not deists, we're not agnostics, we truly believe that he is interested, active, and available in every day of our life, then our rhythm of prayer isn't just at bedtime or in the morning. It can literally be a response all throughout the day, and it doesn't have to be weird. And then he's teaching us that prayer Prayer can be simple. You may have grown up in a tradition where you heard people pray who had prayed a lot. You know? And then you heard yourself pray and you were like, I'm doing it wrong. 
Well, if you hear somebody speak who has spoken 10,000 hours, and then you get up and you try to speak, it's not probably going to sound the same. So don't go and just, that's not what it's about. It's not about doing a perfect prayer. It's about praying to a perfect God, right, who knows what you have. Are y'all with me? Is this helpful? Okay, good. All right. This is my favorite part of this prayer service, all right, ready? Or this prayer teaching that Jesus is doing. This is my absolute favorite. God is making, listen to this, the debt repayment for the pain and for the work that you have done in your life only to himself. I want to try to say this again. Okay, so if you owed me, right? And I forgive the debt. You don't owe me anymore. But God is saying, I'll pay everything back. When I forgive, I'm taking that debt away from you, but it doesn't just go away. God's taking care of it. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's not about me and you anymore. It's about us. It's about It's about what we're talking about. He's taking it out of the power of other people, where people cannot hold you hostage anymore by their refusal to change. They cannot hold you hostage anymore by their refusal to admit that they were wrong or that they did something awful. They cannot hold you hostage anymore by their attitude because no longer, you can't make me whole. He's made me whole. You can't restore what I need. He's going to restore what I need. You can't, but he's going to take care of it. Can I just take it a little bit further just from a personal side? Um, I've been in entrepreneurial business for 12 years. Ever since we moved back in 2009, I went into entrepreneurial business in different areas because I wanted to work at the church. So in order to have the time that I needed to work at the church and, and be able to take care of my family, I've always had different jobs. And so sometimes I've been full-time at the church and had different jobs, and sometimes I've been part-time, and it just has depended. And so um, I've had some experiences, because of the nature of business, where some people just didn't pay their bills. Anybody ever had that experience? Right? Where, where, where honestly, I, I'm, uh, we're just really honest. Maybe I was a little cheated, okay? Maybe it was unfair from my perspective. And I can remember I was really upset about this particular thing, and I was like, oh, I'm just so stupid for letting this happen. I've put my family in a bad position. Now, da, 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 you know, anybody ever just beat themselves up for everything they've ever done? And I felt, I felt from the core of my being I felt the Holy Spirit say, give me the debt. It's like, I don't even know what that that is. Let them go and give me the debt. It's okay. I'm going to let them go. I'm going to give you the debt. And it was during offering time because at the time our, our church gave offering. And in my mind, I mentally just said, God, I give it to you. I just give it to you because I would have given you a bunch of it anyway. So I just give it to you. God restored that to me, not through the same people, but in a totally different way. And you may say, Destiny, don't tell that story because that doesn't happen every time. This is the thing. Before he ever restored the money, he restored my peace of mind. 
And I'll be honest, I think that was more valuable. But you have that option and you have that right to say, I no longer hold it to their account. I give it to you. All right. Let's keep going. Let's go to fasting. All right, you ready? All right. So what have we talked about? We've talked about doing good deeds, right? We've talked about prayer, and now we're talking about fasting, which are all called disciplines, right? Giving, praying, fasting, they're all get disciplines. We'll get there, but let's keep going. Whenever you're fasting, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Poor hypocrites. They're just getting beaten up. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they put on a sad and dismal face like actors discoloring their faces with ashes or dirt, so that their fasting may be what? Seen by men. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, they have their reward and fill. But when you fast, put oil on your head. In other words, like, you know, normally groom yourself. You don't have to go put oil on your head if you don't normally do that. And wash your face. So that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you see it again? Because fasting is supposed to be a discipline that shows you and demonstrates to you that man does not live by bread alone. Right? That it disciplines your body and it reminds you, you can tell your body no. That your body is not in charge. That your body is not the, 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 the end all and the be all. That there is more than the material world. It's this incredible discipline, but it is also about and primarily about drawing close to God. So do you see what had happened? The, the doing good deeds wasn't about giving glory to your Father in heaven. The praying wasn't about God hearing you and transforming your heart so that you could forgive others. The, the, the fasting wasn't about drawing closer to God. It had all become about how other people saw them. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that because you're going to miss out on the reward that a Father in heaven wants to give you. And you're going to get something so temporary. This is something interesting. Do you notice that Jesus assumes that everybody who follows him will give, pray, and fast? When I read that, that kind of hit me because this girl's not that great at fasting. Oh, y'all, are you all perfect at fasting? I mean, you can't join me a little bit and just be like, yeah, I understand. It's a struggle destiny. I mean, just pretend, you know. Fasting is not like my number one spiritual discipline. Now, granted, I've been, you know, either nourishing children or literally growing children for 10 years. But even before then, it wasn't my number one spiritual discipline. But after reading this, I went, man, I've got to get a fasting rhythm in my life. Because if Jesus isn't even saying, hey, you should do good works and you should pray and you should fast, he's commenting on how you do it, then he must be pretty serious about us actually doing it. 
And why? Because those disciplines transform our life. If all we ever do, hear me, because this is a really radical statement and it's kind of hard to say, but just stick with me, okay? If all we ever do is come to church, more than likely, we're not going to see the transformation that we're hoping will happen. Okay, if all we ever do is just try to do what Jesus would do in stressful situations and guess what that is, we're probably not going to see. If you want to do what Jesus would do, in the words of Dallas Willard, who's this incredible person who wrote all of these books, what we have to do is we have to live the way that Jesus lived. And Jesus lived in this rhythm of giving and serving others and praying and making that a priority in his life and even fasting. We have to live as Jesus lived if we want to do as Jesus did. Hey, listen, this is not a feel bad about your life day. This is a, oh, wow, that's possible for me day, right? When we hear truth, the enemy will try to distort it by adding it as a should and making us feel bad about the past when what God wants to do is open up a new for our future. And do you know sometimes it takes a little bit while, a little bit for truth to get assimilated into our life and put into habits? So this should give us hope. Man, I haven't been seeing the transformation that I want in my life yet. There's more that I can do. There's more that I can do to get closer to God. There's more that I can do as honoring and serving of him. There is more. It gives us such incredible hope. Can, can we be real? That is why we have opportunities to serve at church. It's because we believe that God wants you to be great. The Bible says this. Jesus said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you have to be servant of all. And often we totally neglect the want to be great part of that. We just jump to the servant of all part. But you have to want to be great if you're going to be the servant of all. So don't put that away and go, oh, I just, I mean, I just want to be. No, want to be great. And let that drive you to serve every person in your life. That's what drove Paul. It drove Paul. The apostle Paul went out of his way to go to hard places so that he could reap a harvest among different people. He wanted to be great. So he didn't just want to be the servant of one. He wanted to be the servant of all. He wanted to serve every single person who came into contact with him. That's one of the reasons, like I said, we, we have opportunities to serve here at church. It's because we want to give you that opportunity to transform, to become who God's called you to be. We want to give you the opportunity to give your life away for the sake of the gospel. We want to give you an opportunity to serve at VBS and see a little six-year-old come to know Jesus Knowing that in 20 years, maybe they will be a pastor planning a church in Bangladesh. You don't know, but I know kids who are planning churches in Bangladesh who came to know Jesus out of VBS. I bet their group leader didn't know. I bet they thought they were just another snotty-nosed kid. You know what? They may have even been tricked into coming. But that day transformed their life, and look at what's going to happen. Guys, 
This Sermon on the Mount is about living radically different. Jesus doesn't just come and say, hey, I'll save you and leave you alone to a nice pedestrian existence. He says, come and join me for a life of adventure, a life of sacrifice, a life of seeing my kingdom, not your kingdom, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Really fired up about VBS right now. I just have such a burden for the kids of this area. And I just want to say, if you can serve one day, can I ask you to give it? I, 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 can't tell, I can't tell you how much there is a burden on my soul right now to see those kids come to know Jesus. The devil is taking out the next generation. We are one generation away from losing what we have here. One generation. We work in Europe where they're rebuilding. I don't want to rebuild. I want to build upon build. Don't you? Can we just take a moment and pray for VBS? God, I just pray right now. Bible, God, you said that the harvest, that the harvest is plenty, but that we needed to pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers. And Father, right now, we don't pray because we are in need. We pray because we are praying that the harvest will be so great. Lord, we pray. We pray that, that in this moment that, that you would move on people's hearts, not just in this room, but, but people's hearts outside of this room, that, that they will be on their heart to invest during this week into these kids. Father, we pray right now that, that there would be parents who would bring their kids, and they don't even know why they're bringing their kids. They're not even Christians. They're not even people who, who are of faith, but they say, somehow, I just need them to be a part of this. Lord, we pray that you would empower neighbors to, to invite their neighborhood kids to bring them, Father. Lord, we pray for a great harvest. God, we thank you for the missionaries and pastors and evangelists that are going to be raised up, even from this group of kids. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Thank you, guys. Praying with me. I'm pretty excited about it. Okay, let's get back on. Fasting, all right. He's emphasizing their motive and their attitude. And then he gets to the point. Are you ready for it? Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves material treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will B, also, do we see how this is all working together? Okay, so he's like, don't do good things so other people will see. Don't pray so other people will see you. Don't fast so other people will see you. Because that's all about storing up treasures for yourself here on earth. That's about valuing what's going on here in the material world. Instead, do all those things as unto me. Do all those things as secret, not to be noticed by other people, but just to do them, right? And then you're going to, what, be rewarded. Be rewarded by your father and him. You're going to be literally storing up treasures. And then he says this. It's so beautiful. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be. 
And I don't know about you, but I want my heart to be a place where thieves can't break in and steal. I want my heart to be a place where I am protected from the words of others. I want my heart to be a place where, do you see what I'm saying? It's just so crucial that we understand that it's all so intimately connected. This is, this is what one commentary said, and I, I love it. True righteousness is good works with the right motives that seeks God's glory. True righteousness is good works with the right motives that seeks God's glory. And <laughs> these next passages, they really challenge us to have full allegiance and devotion to God because material things offer no security. They may offer comfort for a time, but they offer no security. And then our heart, this is such a beautiful way of saying it. So it's not just that like our heart is where our treasure is, but also the character of our heart, the quality of our character comes from our object of devotion. Do you see how that would be? Because you can't, well, actually, it's about to say it here. It says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, spiritually perceptive, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light inside you, your inner self, your heart, your conscience, is darkness, how great and terrible is that darkness? When we see only the material world around us and desire only the praise of other people, right, the material things, we are in essence blind. We're spiritually blind because we're only seeing some of what really makes up reality. The light of the world wishes to reside on the inside of us and open our eyes to his reality. Have you ever had a moment where you're dealing with a really difficult person and you just take a second and you go, God, I know that, that you died for this person, that they're your child, that you love them, that they're valuable to you, and suddenly you see them completely different? You could say, well, the first way is reality. It's not. The second way is reality. When we see people, situations, the world through the lens of God's way, then we are truly and finally seeing things clearly. That's why I love what Paul said. He said, I, I don't want to come to you just with man's wisdom, okay? But I want to come to you with the word of God, right? Like the, the spiritual. This is the thing. Man's wisdom is one layer, right? It's the natural. But when you add the super and the natural together, then you get a focused picture of reality. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm so excited about this. We're going to keep going because I want to finish this chapter if we possibly can. All right, so the eyes, the lamp of the body. And so it's telling us, you know, don't store up your treasures. Don't do these things so other people will see you because don't do it just for your reward. Don't do it just for esteem. Don't do it just for all these different things. Instead, do it as unto your father and, and have him be your focus because that's when you really are living as though you can see. That's when you're really living with light on the inside of you. And then he gets to the crux of the entire sermon. This is 
the fulcrum, somebody help me. The, it, the fulcrum, is that the fulcrum, the thing that, that turns back and forth? Come on, some engineer. Nope, not pendulum, not pendulum. That's, I'm talking about the, what is your wrist? Is it a fulcrum? Hinge. That's what it is. Thank you. All right, this is the hinge of the entire sermon. This is what it pivots on, okay? This is important. The picture is important, okay? This is what it, this is the central verse. No one could serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is how mammon is defined. Money, possessions, materialism. Nothing in the passage is about money till you get to the hinge. I think because Jesus knew that people don't like talking about money either. And so he's building this beautiful case for everybody, right? And he's like, hey, my way is completely different. It's like higher than your ways, right? And he's like, not only is my way higher than your ways, but the motive for doing my higher way is different than the motive that you've had before. You know, even those disciplines that I'm just totally taking for granted that you're doing, right? You know not everybody in the crowd was doing them. But I'm totally taking it for granted that you're doing them. Even those disciplines, right? Your motive has to be pure there. It's not just about what you do. So, so it's what you do. Like, I'm raising the level on what you do, but I'm also raising the level on your heart. I'm looking at the inside of you, and I want you to know that the choice is not between me and the devil. This is key, guys. The choice is between me and the material world. It's between me and materialism. It's between me and my own, your own comfort. It's between me and the love of money. My way and the way of relying on what I can get right here and right now. Why? Because Jesus is showing them if they serve him, they serve the kingdom of God, their practices and their way of thinking about everything from right action to prayer to forgiveness to fasting will all have to change. And that includes the way that we see money. Because you, it makes sense, right? It makes, it makes sense because of this. Because if you believe that he's king and he has it all, then money does not have the same hold on you that it does for others who believe that it's the ultimate scorecard, that it's the ultimate source of security, that it's the ultimate source of value. Do you see what I'm saying? Even back then, this was such a key, incredible, important concept. I was listening to somebody the other day, and um, it was interesting. Philip had sent it to me, and he was like, hey, listen to what you have to, what, what's going on. And it's this guy, he, he was a, um, I don't normally listen to podcasts, like financial podcasts. I, I normally listen to other things. So, so it was interesting to me because I don't listen to very much. But he said something that hit me really hard. He was talking about how... Um, the material world, something that he really understands. So he like really understands how to deal with money and he really understands how to deal with all those things. And then the guy asked him about spirituality and he was like, man, 
I'm just now like getting a hold on my faith, which I thought was interesting. And you could tell he'd kind of had an encounter of some kind. And he said, but this is what confuses me. He says, I don't understand people who have it all worked out in the spiritual areas of their life, but they don't have any control in the material areas of their life. He said, because in my mind, the spiritual is bigger than the material. Now, look, this is all kind of fresh, so it's messy. But I'm telling you that messed me up. And I'll tell you why it messed me up. Is because I thought to myself, by neglecting the material, am I showing that it has power over me? Does that make sense? Maybe not. Okay, let me try again. When I refuse to submit to the discipline of controlling what I can control in my life, right? Dismissing it as unimportant, that's not a good thing. Instead, I need to allow the discipline of my spirit to remind me that stuff is not the important stuff. It doesn't have control over me. And because it doesn't have control over me, I don't have to be afraid of it. And because I don't have to be afraid of it, I can add discipline to it. I can, do you see what I'm saying? I can live under a budget. I can submit to the disciplines in my life of giving. I can submit to the disciplines of my life of being a good steward because it's not what's giving me my identity and what's giving me my value. So I don't have to be afraid of it and go, oh, well, I'm not going to really worry about stewarding that. I'm not going to worry about really getting involved in that. I'm not going to worry about dominating that part of my life. I'm just going to go over here and I'm just going to la la. Do you see what I'm saying? Discipline in our lives goes into every area of our lives. And submission to God goes into every area of our life. And if we neglect what he says about the material world, but we try to live our life on the spiritual side, we're not going to feel balanced. And God has a lot to say about the material world. It has a lot to say about our bodies. It has a lot to say about the way that we treat ourselves, our environment, our money, our everything. Do you see what I'm saying? And when we submit to God's way, we are submitting to living his way in every single area. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, just grab onto something else that made sense. Okay. I love doing this. This is my favorite. Turn to somebody and say it's her favorite. Oh, I love that. All right. All right. Then he goes on to show the outcomes of the different viewpoints. Okay, so this is really cool. So he, he shows the outcomes of the different in viewpoints, and I think some of you are going to get what I was just saying here. Are you ready for it? He shows the difference between following God's way and God being your master and money or mammon or materialism being your master. Do you want to know the difference? Let's read it. It's very exciting. Therefore, I tell you, stop being worried or anxious huh, about your life. As what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body as what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father keeps feeding them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by worrying can add one hour to the length of his life anyway? I added the anyway. 
And why are you worried about clothes? See how the lilies and the wildflowers of the field grow? They do not grow in my yard. They get mowed down. They do not labor, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory, and Solomon was the most wise man on the earth, but he was also the wealthiest at that time. And he liked clothes. You can read that in the Bible. Solomon, in all his glory and splendor, dressed himself like one of these. Not even Solomon. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive and green today, and tomorrow is cut and thrown as fuel into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Therefore, do not worry or be anxious. Perpetually uneasy, distracted. That's how they defined anxious. Perpetually uneasy and distracted. Saying, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. But don't worry. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first... And most importantly, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right, the attitude and character of God, and all these things will be given to you also. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you see the difference? Do you see how this whole, this whole sermon is leading up to this moment? He's saying, hey, you can only serve one master, God or mammon. Mammon's that word for money, materialism. The system of this world is the way some people define it. Maybe that's helpful to you, the system of this world, the status system of this world, the security system of this world, okay? And he says, you know what? (laughs) You know what is the differentiator between serving those two things? what's inside you? You're constantly worried? You're living in worry? Constantly anxious? Constantly distracted? Or are you living in peace because you truly believe that God is your provider? I love that because it starts on the inside And it ends on the inside. Where's your heart? He goes through this whole thing and he's like, make sure your heart's pure. Make sure your heart's pure. And then he's like, by the way, if you're having a hard time having your heart pure, it's because you're serving the wrong thing. And if you're trying to figure out if you're serving the wrong thing, check your thoughts. Isn't that beautiful? What God does when he teaches us how to have, they, they literally named this, and this is not part of the inspirational part of the Bible, but the, the cure for anxiety is what that part of the passage is called. The cure for anxiety. Worry is equally destructive to greed in our lives, and it's very, very similar. It's a preoccupation with the material without the power of the supernatural in our lives. That's what I was talking about. It's a preoccupation of the material without the power of the supernatural in our lives. Because worry ultimately comes from a lack of faith. Because we have a recourse, which is prayer. 
And they say that later in the New Testament. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Bring your requests unto God. Make them known unto him. And then what? The peace of God is going to, peace and joy of God is going to guard your heart in Christ Jesus, right? We have a choice. We can serve a different God. And this is what I love. He doesn't just say that. It's not just prayer. But first and foremost, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Do you know one of the ways that we reject the kingdom of the world, the materialism, the system of the world, is to invest our time in building the kingdom of God? Seeking to do the work of God in the earth? See, the Bible emphasizes work and the need for work. But it's a work ethic that comes from understanding that we were made to do good works in the earth and that we have an option to do everything we do, every single job that we do as unto the Lord. My sister's down in Miami. Come play, and and we're going to close in just a moment. Um, My sister's down in Miami, and uh, they have a church down there, and they just have a ton of first-generation Christians. Maybe some of you are first-generation Christians, but they have a ton of first-generation Christians. 21, 22, 23, 24-year-old. Can I say kids? I'm 40 now. I can call them kids, right? Do you know what their parents object to? Their families make fun of? Their friends ridicule them for? Not for believing in Jesus. But for giving their time to build the local church. Why are you doing? Why do you serve there? It's so dumb. It's so useless. Why do you, why do you go why do you go to a group? Why do you because that's what they have. They they actually call their groups crews because they're very cool. Isn't that cool? Crew. Anyway. Not enough cool people to even laugh at that, whatever. That's what they get ridiculed for is trying to build. Why do you volunteer? That? I don't understand. Why, do you, why are you trying? What is the benefit of that place, you know? But it's about building the kingdom our whole lives. When we come to Jesus from then on, it's just about building the kingdom. It's about doing everything that we do as unto the Lord. Philip and I started pastoring this church before we were ever on salary for being pastors at this church. And we'll be building the kingdom of God long after there's somebody else standing on the stage somewhere. Why? Because we want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Was it just found in church? No, but it's really hard to start a complete neighborhood group and and foundation all on your own. This is kind of ready-made. You may as well just start here. Maybe you want to start with BTS, helping serve there. Maybe you want to start with Cumberland Farms. Maybe you want to start with the community care. Maybe you want to start just standing at the door and welcoming weary people on Sundays and on Wednesdays and telling them you love them. Maybe you want to start with the babies, rocking them, holding them, praying over them, declaring God's favor over their lives. 
knowing that your words have eternal value. Maybe you want to start going into work with integrity. I don't know, but it says seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. You can't just eliminate worry from your life. You have to replace it with prayer and with work. With prayer and with work. With prayer and seeking God's kingdom. With prayer and putting your life into something new. With prayer and declaring to yourself that there is something that's more important to you. Do you you hear me? It's just so important. Because this is the thing, I wanna be transformed. I want God to renew my mind. I want him to transform me. I wanna be a new creature. I wanna be all of those things. I wanna live the full life. I wanna live the hopeful life. I want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And the older I get, the more that I want self-control. But I can't get that and be straddling the line and getting my identity and my safety and my security from what other people say about me, from my bank account, from my achievements in this world, and from God. I just want to encourage you today. If you see yourself in those passages and you're like, man, I feel like, I feel like I'm kind of straddling the fence. You know what straddling the fence is? It's being a hypocrite. That's mean. I know. I'm talking to me too. You know what straddling the fence is? Miserable. It's just like Pastor Clarissa said, that inner life, that inner dialogue of worry, right? That inner dialogue of faith, that private life, that public life, bringing it into alignment with God's way. Sermon on the Mount's radical. It's crazy. It's, it's world-changing. But it comes down to this. Whose way will you choose? Whose way will you choose? Here's just a couple final thoughts, and then we're going to pray. When we follow God, it results in trust, which causes us to be focuses on God's way and who God is. When we follow mammon, it focuses us on scarcity, pride, unforgiveness, greed, control, and worry because we're so focused on ourselves. I love what he says about don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Because the way that you build a great life is by starting by building great days. Because great days build into great weeks, which build into great months, which build into great years. But you can't build the days that you need to build, the days that are faith-focused, that are seeking God first, when all your energy is focused on tomorrow or on what others think and are doing. Here's an assessment for how I'm spending the day. You ready? Maybe it'll be helpful to you too. Examine your thoughts. Just become aware of them. 
you constantly negative? Are you constantly worrying? Is every other thought a should instead of a I can? Constantly looking down on people or worried about how people see you? Examine your thoughts. Examine your phone use. That's not in the Bible. But I'm telling you, look at your log. You may find that that you're buying into the system of this world. This is the thing, is that social media is not reality, but it can determine how you see reality. Are you letting it color the way that you see the world? Examine your inputs. Examine your goals, your structure, your planning, because it's all God's. One of the things I love about Jewish culture is that the day didn't start in the morning. The day started in the evening. So the day started, think about this, with preparation for the next day. Because that's what we all do for what we consider the next day. It started when the sun went down. It started with rest. It started Do you see what I'm saying? It was a different way of viewing the day. And yet he's saying, hey, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to have enough worry in its own. Just just stick with today. Stick with today. Stay here with me. Hey, stay here with me. Stay here with me in the present. Stay here with me in this moment. Don't go, don't go somewhere else. Don't worry so much. Don't plan on how you're going to connect with me. Connect with me now. That is something that has radically changed my life. Instead of telling myself, hey, I really need to connect with God. I go, oh, I, I need to connect with God. I'm going to connect right this moment. Does that make sense? Today, 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 today. You could do a whole study on just the today in the Bible. Today is the day of salvation. Today. And you know, the whole system of this world wants to focus you either on the past or this future. It wants to tell you who you are by your past, right? Or it wants to get you so worried and worked up about changing who you are by changing the future. And God is saying, hey, you know who you are today? You're my kid. Stick with me here in today because this is where I'm meeting you. I'm meeting you here today, right here in this moment. I'm present and available today. So stop thinking and worrying so much about the future. Stop thinking and worrying so much about what other people say. Just connect with me today. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.